media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Is that working much better there? Thank you. Sometimes it's a flip of the switch. Uh, but puzzles, whether it's a 50-piece children's puzzle, whether it's a really complex one, like, you know, the hardest one you could ever imagine, uh, there's actually some ways that you can go about in making the difficulty of solving that and putting that puzzle together. And it's really not all that complex. It really kind of follows a strategy. And that strategy, uh, basically, if I can just boil it down to the, the biggest simplicity, number one, identify your pieces. And uh, like in this picture, you know which ones are the edge. You know, that's one of the, the biggest things that you look for is, okay, which one is the edge? So you identify your pieces. Then you assemble your framework. You go ahead and build the outside. And so you have kind of the parameter that you're working with. And then you put sections together. For example, let's say in this particular one, if you go, okay, that's probably a tree. It looks like a palm tree. And so are there other sections that look like a palm tree that have that color? And that's basically how you take the complexity of putting a a puzzle together. You kind of just identify the pieces, build the framework, and then put sections together. And eventually, that which may seem a little bit impossible comes together. In some ways, I think that some of us uh, could use those same instructions, that we could very much use that strategy, if you want to say, to solve the puzzle of the Bible. We've heard many, many times about how difficult it is to Kind of, you know, figure out the Bible. It's a very complex book. Uh, just like this particular puzzle would be a very complex puzzle. It's of uh, all the, the world map. But how would you take a 2,000-piece puzzle and start putting together? Well, the strategy that we just said, you'd build that framework. And then you're going, okay, here's part of South America. Here's some other places are part of South America. Oh, here's the United States. Here's New York. Well, over here is the, the, the West Coast. And you put those sections together, and all of a sudden you're able to take something that is somewhat difficult, and you're able to put that framework together, and you're able to see the bigger picture. We did that a little bit with the Advent series. If you were here during December, we looked at uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and we basically broke broke the Bible down to uh, this one story, down to four parts of the story. The creation, the fall of man, the redemption of man through the plan and the work of Christ, the coming of Christ, and one day there's going to be a restoration. The Bible really can be looked at. That can be your four corners, if you want to say, the parameters that you begin to to place everything in the Bible in. The cool thing is, when you simplify your approach to looking at the Bible, you begin to see the importance of every single piece of that puzzle, but where it falls into line. That is, we begin to look at the complexity of the Bible, written over several hundred, uh, so many, many centuries, by all these different authors, more than 40 different authors, all of a sudden that which seems so complex comes back to a little bit of simplicity. Let me give you an example. Here's an analogy. Uh, can we show that next? What is that a picture of? Mona Lisa. Okay, one of the most famous pictures in the world. When we were in France, we went to go see that. And I was really kind of surprised at uh, how little it is. It's not a, a super big picture like you would think. But, but the Mona Lisa, one of the most famous ones. This is actually a puzzle of Mona Lisa. What makes this a little bit different, and you were able to identify Mona Lisa uh, right off, 
you're well versed maybe in art. You're well versed and you see that famous picture and you're going, ah, Mona Lisa. And, and in one way you could approach this picture just like every, oh, this puzzle, just like every other puzzle. Do the framework and then put sections together. No sections, eye sections, you know, different things like that. Well, one of the unique things about this particular puzzle is called a photo mosaic and, uh, very cleverly done. When you look really closely, what the author did, what the artist did here, is he took famous pictures or paintings, uh, some of the, the standards from all over the centuries, and he used those to actually put together this picture of Mona Lisa. So that when you look at it from afar, you get the one big picture. Oh, Mona Lisa. None of you are going, you know, I, I can't figure that out. You are instantly able to do that. But as you get closer and closer, isn't that kind of amazing? I mean, you see all these portraits. You see all these other paintings that have been famous for the ages that make up the bigger picture of the Mona Lisa. Now, the real artist of the Mona Lisa didn't do that. This is what this one particular guy did to make a puzzle. Well, this is a great analogy to me of the Bible. You stand far back and all of a sudden you begin to see this big picture of God's love. And then when you get closer, you see all these other parts of it. Again, you can break it down as simply as, you know, the four parts of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. You can see it that way. Or, you know, when you get to the Gospels, you can begin to see even the intricacies of each individual story. Like that that we saw last week of the gathering demoniac. This man whose life was totally wasted, totally broken. And how when he came in contact with Christ, there was a restoration of every part of his body. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. He wasn't the same man. There had been transformation. But in one way, if you understand what the artist did here, when he took all these into little little uh, uh, paintings and made a bigger painting, that's what's happening in the Bible. One picture made up of hundreds of little pictures, all to show us who God is and his plan for us. Each year at CS, we, we try to start with a vision verse and a word. If you go back, you can see, uh, for example, in 2019, the word was rejoice. And we focused on what does that mean biblically to rejoice. 2018, we looked at John 3.30. He must decrease, uh, or uh, he must increase, I must decrease. And we looked at it, and that was kind of our focus. And it's not that every sermon during that year was along that, but that was kind of guiding our minds and our hearts. Uh, we could go back 2017. It was uh, Philippians 3, 13 and 14, press on. That was our word. That was kind of our thought, press on. And so each year we try to take something that, uh, I mean, usually it comes upon me. I, I'm not trying to be selfish there, but as I pray and as I kind of go, okay, God, what is it that you want us to to see as a church, as a body of believers. And the word that, the God, that God gave me this year is the word transformation or transform. And the verse that he laid upon my heart was Romans 12, 2. It's always been one of my favorites, and, and I think it's really relevant in the day and the age that we live. And last week we saw that while the Bible is full of information, and it certainly has a lot of information, the whole purpose of the Bible is transformation. I've shared with some of you before, uh, biblical backgrounds, one of our courses in seminary. Uh, I went in there and uh, it was 24 pages long. It was 12 legal size pages front and back. So 24 
legal size pages was the test. And one section at the bottom, so maybe one sixtieth of the whole test was name all of Paul's missionary journeys, the text where it is, and what the city that it happened in, and what of significance happened there. That was one sixtieth of the of things. Folks, I was not transformed by that test. I did my best to get as much information as I could to make a passing grade. Then it was kind of discouraging, discouraging to find out that a 91 is a B and, and that an 84 is a C in seminary and master's level. And so I was further discouraged. But I promise you, on that day, I wasn't looking for transformation. I was trying to gather all the information that I could and spit it back out on that test. Well, a lot of times we can live life that way. That we just kind of gather spiritual information, biblical information, and we can quote verses and we can kind of know morality and all these different things. And yet it never transforms the way that we actually live our life. The Bible is not about, it has information and it's important and truthful information. But it is not about information. You're not going to stand before a holy God one day and he said, you know, I'm just very, very impressed that you acquired so much information. If there's not a transformed life that is accompanied and molded by that. And so this morning, as we look at Romans 12 too, what is biblical transformation? What does it mean to be transformed in the way that we think, act, and live? Because that's what it's talking about in Romans 12 too. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote. And even though Paul wrote it, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's word. This isn't just Paul's kind of opinion here. This is the word of God. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's follow our puzzle-solving analogy. Let's build a framework. Three main transformations that the Bible talks about. One of those transformations is what we would call uh, more of from death to life. It's what we call salvation. That we went from a place, some people say you were lost and now you're saved. You were blind, but now you see. There was a transformation that took place in the life of every Christian, and that is uh, the technical kind of theological word is justification. That you went from being an enemy of God to actually a part of God's family. So that's one of the transformations, and that's the first and primary transformation that takes place, biblically speaking. The second one that we see in the Bible, and, and really it follows, this is the whole rest of the biblical story, is that we go from a life of sinfulness, striving more and more, learning more and more, thinking more and more, being transformed more, into a life of holiness, more Christ-likeness. We call this sanctification. And so where you and I right now, if you're a Christian this morning, you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you have been saved, salvation has come, you are now a child of God instead of the enemy of God, and now you've been justified, and now you're in that process of sanctification. There is no longer any justification for those who are in Christ. That, that process is done. Then there's a third transformation that we see biblically. 
It's the one that we usually think of in Revelation and that. And that is when we go from this life of imperfection to a life of perfection. A life of a broken body <laughs> to a perfect body. Are you waiting for that day? Yeah. And so we, we call that glorification. That's kind of the fancy word. But when we look at the Bible and we use that word transformation, these are the three main transformations that take place. Does that kind of make sense? Now, if we get that, Romans 12, 2 is not dealing with number one, and it's not dealing with number three. It's really dealing with number two. Paul is now writing, what does the sanctified, what does the sanctification process look like? How does it happen? How do we move from our natural sinfulness to Christ's likeness and holiness? And where salvation, salvation, uh, transformation deals mainly with a new heart, most of the writing that we see in the Bible about sanctification is dealing with the new mind. When we look at salvation, he took out the heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. And we see other verses that kind of make the heart the object there. When we start looking at this sanctification in a biblical way, most of the references that we look at are all talking about now a change of the mind, the way that we actually process things. And you can see that in Romans 12 too. Look what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The change of a heart? No, the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In fact, this really, Romans 12, uh, starts a brand new section in Romans. Now again, he wrote a letter. Paul wrote a letter. He didn't break it up into chapters and verses and all that. We did that later so that it would be easy to, to use as a workbook. But Paul takes the first 11, and this is a broad, uh, kind of a broad statement. The first 11 chapters of Romans are theological in nature, and now he's getting into the practical application of that theology. Chapters 1 through 11 focus on salvation mainly. I mean, it will talk a little bit about uh, sanctification, but, but in a theological sense. Now Paul gets into, okay, what does this look like? All this theology, what does it look like when we go out and actually live? Let me give you an example. I hope you brought your Bible this morning, even though we always try to show the verses up here. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 12. And we know that the headings in your Bible are not ordained. They're, they're not the Word of God. This is what man has put in there to kind of help us clarify and understand. But when you look at some of the headings in Romans chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, you're going to see Israel's salvation, the Gentiles being grafted in. You're going to see all these theological terms that deal more with salvation. Do you see that in some of the titles that they put there? Now look at Romans 12. Specifically, just a good example. What is the title, and you can speak out on this, what is the title that your Bible gives to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21? Anybody want to offer what your Bible says? Love in action. Love. Marks of the true Christian. That's what mine says, too. Marks of the true Christian. Do you see how that's application? It's not that it's void of theology, but what he gets into, okay, here's the theological things. Now, here's the practical part. 
And when you go into verse uh, or chapter 13, what are some of the, the titles that you see there in 13? Submission, <laughs> Submission to uh, authorities. That's a difficult one. Okay, 14, what do you see there? Yeah. Do you see how these are all application oriented? These are the things that you, you know, when you put your boots on in the morning, these are things you go out and you actually do. Why? Because of chapters 1 through 11. We can't take chapters 1 through 11 out because that's the basis for this changed life. But in this transformed life, it doesn't leave us untouched and undirected. It actually changes the way we live life. So as we begin to look at that from that aspect, Romans chapter 12 is the beginning of Paul going, okay, here's how you live out the Christian life. And he begins with, don't be conformed anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is where I want to be very intellectually honest with you. Uh, this conversation has come up many times over the years from skeptics that I've talked to. They're going, you know... <laughs> That, that whole thing about, you know, just believing this. He said, isn't Christianity, one guy told me, isn't Christianity basically just brainwashing? You know, you tell people what to think, you go there and you, and, and, and please hear this. Don't go out and say that your pastor believes that, that Christianity is brainwashing. In a general sense, in a theoretical sense, I would say yes. I really would say yes. I don't know about you, but my brain needs washing. And I'm not trying to be silly or, or, or say a pun there. But Paul just points out, he said, don't be conformed to the world. In other words, he says, okay, don't do this, but do think this way. He's telling us that there's two different ways to think. Have you ever heard the word propaganda? Propaganda is one of those things that you put out. And usually it has a connotation of a negative motive. That you, you kind of use all this information, you get somebody to think this way, even though it may not be the superior way. A lot of times when we look back in world history and we look at Hitler, we begin to see how one of the motives of Hitler taking over a country is that he just put out all kinds of propaganda. He began to do that across Europe. And more and more as people began to read these things, whether they were true or not, they began to believe these things. Well... The Bible here is saying, okay, transform your mind. What is this, by brainwashing? Is it by propaganda? No, it's by the truth of God's word. Biblical transformation of the mind does desire for you to think a certain way. And it thinks of you to think, uh, it asks you to think of that way constantly and consistently. And so in one way, in a theoretical sense, for that person who comes and says, Bobby, it's just a lot of brainwashing... There's an element of that that says yes. But my first admittance is, but I need brainwashing. I, I think this way kind of naturally, and I need that to be changed because I believe that this other way is a truthful, best way to think. Look at the first part of Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. Paul points out that there's a certain way of thinking that God does not desire. And this way of thinking comes from the vantage point of our sin nature. How many of you have a sin nature? Okay. And so we have that, okay? And so, okay, this is the way that your sinful things... For example, we with that sin nature, we look out for self instead of looking out for others. Okay. 
Now, by the grace of God, and because we have been made in the image of God, even a lost person, a person who doesn't know God because of common grace, can still show up at ISERV and still go out and do this and, and be, you know, be very nice to their neighbors. We're not saying that only Christians do this. We're not even saying that Christians do it better than the rest of the world. We're just saying there's a natural compulsion within us in our human nature that we kind of put self first and think of others secondly. For example, another one of those things that we do, we tend to think temporarily rather than eternally. A lot of times we're more concerned with today, this week, this month, than thinking and believing in faith of the future and eternal and keeping an eternal perspective. Would you agree that that's part of this human condition? Well, Paul says these ways of thinking come very naturally to us. And one of the illustrations I give over and over, and I'm not trying to bore you by using this same illustration, but I think it's one that most people can relate to. Uh, When we don't teach our children to be selfish, did any of you ever sit down and say, okay, I want to teach you how to make sure that you know that this is yours and you don't share it with anybody? No, if anything, there was already a bent in that way. You're two boys. Was there a bent that what is theirs is theirs? Exactly. And so you and Chris had to go and you had to begin to focus on, no, we want to share. But that was not their base nature whatsoever. And what you had to do is begin to transform their way of thinking. Why? Because we inherently believe that being selfish is inherently wrong. When you look back one verse, you begin to to see some of the things that God desires, but that do not come naturally to us. Look at Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren. Now, why does he say that? Because he's basing it on the first 11 chapters of theology, of all this about salvation. Now, as he makes this transition to how we live this out, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in other words, because God has done this for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Are we naturally prone to sacrifice? That is, let me define that. Death of self for the sake of others. Is that a natural bent that you have? (laughs) No. Maybe you've developed that over the years. Maybe you had great parents and they kind of taught you that, you know, think of others before you think of yourselves. But it does not come naturally. And so where does he come back? And he, he starts at that very basis and he says, look, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Go out and live this way. So God tells us not to conform to one way or another, but he gives us another way of thinking. Go back to verse 2. The do not, do not be conformed to this world. The do, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And look how he describes it. That is, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And where does this happen? In the mind. This is the battlefield. I'm not trying to take the heart away from it. But the heart mainly is addressed when it's talking about a salvation issue. And we would not be able to think differently if we didn't have a new heart. Paul's assuming that there's a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone now. But now as we begin to live this out, he said the battleground now... (laughs) 
is not so much the heart as it is the mind. And, and guys, biblically, it, it would tell us that there's a war going on every day. Would you agree to that? Every day. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, there's still a battle going on. Maybe one that you're winning more often than you used to, but there's a battle. And Paul addresses that. That's why I need to at least as much of God's word as I do the news or more of God's word than I do social media. I'm not saying that those things can't be used for God. I'm just going... You know, that's going to conform or that's going to begin to direct the way I think about things. Based, because on this battleground, so, get this. Someone is going to win. It may be a long battle. But at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, one of those two opponents are going to win a way of thinking like the world and the old sinful nature, are now this new nature that is there because of the Holy Spirit of God living within us. Paul tells us that by testing, we're able to discern, prove, know what God's will is. So many people over the years, in one of the common questions, Pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? And I know what they're saying. Should I take this job or this job? Should we move to New England? Should we move to the West Coast? You know, and different things of different dilemmas that they have before them. And they want to know God's will. I don't believe that this God's will here of testing to know God's improved, discern God's will is more of, should I take the job at Walmart or at Target? I, I don't know. I'm not saying that it doesn't involve that. I, I think it's more, Paul's talking more about a way of thinking that just approaches every decision that we make in life from a spiritual perspective. And so we begin to see that this transformed mind, knowing God's will, comes because of this great promise. If you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, resides in you. And it's by God's Spirit that he transforms our way of thinking but get this, and then empowers us to be able to carry it out. How difficult it would be sometimes to know the right answer and to feel like you had no ability, no power whatsoever to live it out. I mean, sometimes do you feel like that way with like church and sermons? Well, yeah, I listen to that sermon. I want to be like that, but man, I just, you know, you just don't know the family I come from. You don't know my background. No, if we have the very spirit of the living God within us, There's not just the direction pointer, but there's the enabler. There's the one that empowers us to be able to do that. And then we begin to see what this Christ life looks like in real 3D. Let me end this morning by asking a couple questions. And it's not so much for me to ask of you, but for me to ask of myself. And for you to ask of yourself, not of your wife or your husband, not, not of this person or that person, but for you to ask these questions of yourself. The first question, am I conforming more to the world's way of thinking or to God's way of thinking? If you just honestly approach that, what, what is the pattern of my thought life? Second one, 
What is shaping my thoughts more, the news or the Bible? I tell them what news you listen to, but is it the information that I'm gathering or the Word of God? Uh, what's directing my thoughts, number three? What's directing my, my thoughts and my actions more, social media or the very Spirit of God? See, every one of those can have influence. I'm not saying that the news is evil. I'm not saying that social media is evil. It can be used for good. It may be one of the ways that we actually get the Word of God all the way around the world. I'm just saying that we live in a world where there's all points of information. This this morning is just one point of information. And I pray that it is from God's Word. But, but folks, we get information that can start to direct us to enable this battlefield of the mind one way or the other. And so we ask ourselves these questions. God, are my thoughts, are my actions, are my emotions, are they being directed? Am am I being transformed more and more into think like Christ, to act like Christ, to respond to situations like Christ? Those are good questions. They're relevant questions. And there are questions that we will talk about in the coming weeks as we talk about this whole idea of being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you for this verse. I thank you for the encouragement of transformation. That Father, that uh, I don't have to to settle for the old way that, that Bobby is. And that old nature that comes back so often. Father, I declare I am selfish by nature, and yet, Father, I'm so surprised, maybe I shouldn't be, that those moments of selfishness can come back in an instant. So, Father, I need to have a transformation in the way that I think. Father, I need a knowing that this battleground and this battle is going on in my mind, Father, I pray more and more and more that it would be fed by your word, enabled by your spirit, so that until that day of glorification, until that that final transformation that takes place when we leave this old brokenness and we have the fullness of what you have promised, that, Father, more and more and more, we can think and act and react like the one who saved us, Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Father, you're so good to us. You are so, so good. And we just sing you this song as a simple prayer of of truth, of proclamation of the God that you are. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.